0: We're looking at Matthew 23, beginning at verse 13 primarily. <clears throat> We're looking at the conspirators of Jesus' death and what he has to say about them in their de- in his day. And he begins with a number of woes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 13 and following. There are seven of these woes. The word woe here is really an expression, if you look in the original text, it is an expression of grief. Woe, yes, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. So in these woes, Jesus is not gloating. He's not happy about what he has to say to these wicked men. He is saddened. He is grieved at the deplorable moral corruption and hypocrisy characteristic of the religious leaders of his day, and enumerates their sins one by one that they might get from his lips a mirror of the true condition of their heart. Probably, with the exception of John the Baptist, they haven't heard any preaching like this in a long, long time. Who would confront the Pharisees? I mean, think about this. They were the teachers over Israel. Someone's going to confront them? John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, confronted them when they came out to the Jordan. But other than him, there's not a lot going on here in terms of these men. So Jesus takes on the task directly. Verse 13. First, woe. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. And refuse to enter yourself. Now, let me ask. Doesn't it seem strange that religious leaders would be accused of hindering people from entering the kingdom of God? I mean, don't we expect religious leaders to point people to salvation, to his kingdom, as signposts of how to become reconciled to God. These are all spiritual needs in a person's life. Men and women are more than material and body. They are spirit. They are soul. We're born in a natural world consisting of appetites for food and Clothing and housing and interpersonal relationships and sexual fulfillment and creature comforts and good health and the like and on and on the list goes for the body. But there's the spirit of us all which is restless because of sin and we need to be reconciled to God. And what a shame when we don't see this we need someone to point this out to us. You need God in your life. Yeah, I know you got money. You drive a fancy car. You live in a beautiful home. But you need to be reconciled to God for your sin. And we expect the spiritual leaders to be the ones that are telling this. They have to help us see this. Well, God brought this to Ezekiel's attention as his prophet. Let me read it for you. It's in the Old Testament. God says to Ezekiel, if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. Son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel now. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So, hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable. For his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from away from his wickedness, and he does not do so, he will surely die for his sin, but you will be saved yourself. Ezekiel thirty three verses six through nine. The implied impediment here, as described by God, is a watchman that is God's prophet or teacher who sees God's judgment on the horizon. He's fully apprised of the danger to his people. He knows how to avert the judgment. But then he issues no warning. He gives no instruction on how these sinful people can be spared and saved. Now this was not Ezekiel in his ministry, but it was the Pharisees and the scribes, and the religious teachers in their ministry. I have to ask, why would someone withhold the life jacket from a drowning man? He says, you yourselves, Jesus saying, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Verse 14 of, These Pharisees, these scribes were not believers themselves. They were skeptics. They did not take God's warning seriously for themselves. And so so they became a stumbling block to those who were striving to act in a responsible way to the divine warnings. They were hindering people. They weren't believers themselves and they didn't want anyone else to become a believer either. Boy, can you see the wickedness of that? Luke words it this way, Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. For you yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering Luke 11 verse 52 you see why you need the synoptic gospels by comparing gospel accounts together you get begin to get the whole picture what is jesus saying when he's saying that they're hindering those people that are trying to... he's saying they took away the key to knowledge why would these religious leaders take away the key to knowledge jesus gives this answer in Matthew 21 verse 32 For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Wow. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. Matthew 21 verse 32. The key here is this. They didn't see themselves in the same class as tax collectors and prostitutes. In Jesus' parable, he makes that clear. He says the Pharisee stood up and prayed. He's in the temple. The Pharisee stood up and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here, stand next to me. Luke 18, verse 11. And what was the basis of Jesus' parable? Well, you have to look at verse 9 of Luke 18 to see that. It reads there, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. That's why it was told. They were confident that they were righteous and they looked down on everybody else. So, the first woe is this. You don't enter the kingdom of God and you hinder everyone else that's trying. You have the key of knowledge and you won't share it. You won't unlock their ignorance. You won't point them to God. You won't point them to Christ. Second woe. It's not verse 14 because verse 14 is not found in most manuscripts talks about devouring widows, houses, and so forth. Now, these teachings, listen to me, these teachings are found in Mark's version of this speech and Luke's version of this speech. It's Mark 12, verse 40, Luke 20, verse 47. Then you'll say, well, why then did the translators put it here in Matthew 23, 14? These are called... Interpolations what's an interpolation? An interpolation is to insert words into a text. Why would they do that? Good question. Why would they do that? Well, they're thinking, Matthew probably knew about the whole teaching, but he just he kind of forgot this particular section, so he left it out. We'll help Matthew along. We'll put the words in the Matthew text that are found in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. Hey, don't do that. Don't mess with the word of God. We're not to do that. Even if your goal is great, even if you have good intentions, and I'm sure that the the translators had good intentions, it's not found here in Matthew's gospel. We'll talk about this a little bit later. Uh, It is found in Mark's gospel. It is found In Luke's. So we jump then to verse 15 for the second woe. They were intense on making converts, but in doing so, they made converts of hell like themselves and not converts of heaven. Get my glasses on here. Let's read. Verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea. Look at look at the length to which they would go. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Ooh, this teaching is heating up, isn't it, here? Well, any, anyone but Jesus... We might think they're being a bit presumptuous. When the Pharisees showed up at the Jordan River where John was baptizing, we remember that John's salutation was less than cordial. We do not hear him say, Welcome, friends! Oh, good to see you, brothers! How good of you to come! He didn't say anything like that. No, instead he says, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the coming wrath? Jesus said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. Matthew 12. Verse 33, verse 34. And he was talking to the, about the Pharisees again. Now look at verse 32 and 33 of our text. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? You see this language, vipers, snakes, sons of hell, repeated almost all the time when the Pharisees are under are the subject of discussion. Now, none of us are prophets of God, like um, in the sense of John the Baptist. Uh, And we certainly are not sons of God in the sense of Jesus Christ. So only with great, great reservation would we ever accuse anyone of being a son of hell. Verse 15. But Jesus does that here. Remember, however, that we are studying the crucifixion conspiracy, Satan's attempt to thwart God's salvation for sinners. And Jesus has had former dealings with Satan. Not only in his own wilderness temptation, Matthew 4, but also in the expulsion of Satan from the mountain of God, which we studied in Ezekiel 28, verse 16 and in Revelation. So, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees in John 8, who claimed godly Abraham as their father, Jesus refuted that claim, saying... As it is, you're determined to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard of God. Abraham did not do such things. This is his way of saying, you can't be children of Abraham because you're out to kill me. Verse 44, John 8, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and he's the father of lies. So the point here is that we need to be wise in these matters. You say, well, I'm not God. I'm not gifted with omniscience. I cannot look into a person's heart to see if their intent is evil. Well, that's all true. But notice that while it is true that Jesus, like his father, was omniscient, and could see into the Pharisees' hearts, the text gives evidence that we can all discern. What does he say? He says in verse 37 of John 8, You are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. Well, that that was an observable fact. Or verse 40 mentions the same murderous goal. Or verse 42, this is all in John 8, If God were your Father, you would love me. There's no love for Christ in the Pharisees. Or verse 43, Why is my language not clear to you? It's because you're unable to hear what I say. He's speaking truth. These people are into lies. They're not hearing Christ. Now what Jesus is demonstrating here is what he taught the disciples about False teachers. Here, let me read it for you. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, here it is, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? Or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, here it is, conclusion, by their fruit you will recognize them. You don't need to be omniscient. Jesus is telling his disciples. Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20. You just have to be good observers of the fruit. What's a person life bringing forth? If it's bad fruit, they're bad inside. You don't have to have the ability to read their thoughts or any of that. Omniscience belongs to God alone. But you can see what their actions are saying about their heart. Mm -hmm. This is not omniscience in operation, but rather observation in, in action. The religious leaders were themselves children of hell, and by their teaching, by their converts, twice as much a son of hell as they. May I say it this way? Satan has his preachers too. He does. Let me read it for you. Paul says, Such men... Are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Here again, Paul's taking a say. You know, open your eyes, see what's going on here. So I wouldn't judge anybody you know, open your eyes and see if what's being taught to you is truth or error second corinthians 11 13 through 15 so they knew the truth they withheld the truth third well misunderstanding and use of oaths oaths look at verses 16 <clears throat> And following, woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, then he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. Oh, and he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Wow. Whenever people um, begin to nitpick about statements they have made or contracts they have signed or positions they hold to, they do this nitpicking because they're looking for a way out. They realize they have put their foot in their mouth. They are now in trouble. And so they want to mitigate what was done. Well, I, 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 What we are seeing here, however, is not quite the same because there is intent here with the Pharisees and scribes. That is to say, they did not say something or do something and then say, "Uh oh, oh, I made a mistake." How how are we going to get out of our our oath? No, that's not what was going on. Instead, they phrased their oath up front in their teaching to provide a way out so that at a later date they could say, Well, you know, I didn't swear by the gold of the temple, so I am not bound by my promise, verse 16. Or, I didn't swear by the gift on the altar, so I am not bound, verse 7. Jesus calls them blindfolds, verse 17, verse 19, because gold is not sacred apart from the temple which sanctifies it. The money in your wallet is not sanctified till we put it in the offering plate and it's given to God. Then that's a holy offering. And then that's why God says in Malachi, you folks are robbing me not, by not bringing in the tithe. See? That's what makes it sacred. Neither is the gift sacred offered to God apart from the altar of sacrifice. Now, what are these? Well, these were just clever ways of the religious leaders of the day to weasel out of binding obligations of their oaths without appearing to be guilty of duplicity. Or in the colloquialism of our Native Americans, White man speaketh with forked tongue. Which was true of many occasions in the early days of our country. Had these religious leaders been men of God? They, there was teaching in their own scriptures upon the sanctity of oaths. Let me read some. Isaiah says, Listen to this, O house of Jacob. You who are called by the name of Israel... And come from the line of Judah, who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel. But not in truth or righteousness. You who call yourselves citizens of the holy city and rely on the God of Israel, the Lord Almighty is His name. Isaiah 48, verse 1 and 2. were taking oaths, and they were swearing, and they were using God's name, but not in righteousness. Leviticus 19, verse 12, in the law, says this, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. One of the Ten Commandments, of course, is that we're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. People do this all the time as they damn one another and God this and God damn that and so forth. That kind of we call that profanity for a good reason. They're profaning the name of God. While well, Leviticus nineteen twelve says that they're profaning God's name when they swear, when they take an oath using the name of God. God told Jeremiah, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around, consider, search through their squares. And if you find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You struck them. But they felt no pain. You crushed them. But they refused correction. They made their faces harder, harder than stone. And they refused to repent. Jeremiah 5, the first three verses. Oh, boy. Anybody can take the name of God and say, Well, as God is my witness, I... And they swear. When we come to the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus is this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head. You cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply, here's Jesus' answer, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Oh, Matthew five thirty three through thirty seven, and here we are talking about evil people swearing and making oaths. Translation. Jesus is saying to his disciples, Be such men and women of integrity that when you speak, no one will doubt the truthfulness of what you say. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were children of the evil one, and so their oaths were laced with intentional deceptions and lies. And even though they took God's name and swore... By the temple, the altar, whatever. They had built into their oaths a little way of escape. Well, I don't have to keep that oath because I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. Fourth woe. They were majoring in the minors. Verse 23. You give a tenth, that's what the word tithe means. You give a tenth of your spices and their name there. But, here it is, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, namely justice, mercy, faithfulness. You know, that verse helps me a lot. It tells me that there are things in Scripture, some things are more important than other things in Scripture. That's really true. Now, we don't get a chance to, to toss the coin to determine what they are. Well, I think... We, we don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. God cares what He thinks. And what He is saying to them is, okay, tithing is in the Scriptures. I, we, we have that in there. That's part of the law. But there's some very important things, and in, in fact, more important things, that you Pharisees have left out, just as mercy faithfulness. Tithing or giving a tenth of your resources was part of Jewish law. Let me read it for you. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. Leviticus 27 verse 30. And this applied just two verses later to the livestock as well. Verse 32. Now I say, what is this about? Well, this is how God supported the Levites, the ministers, who were not a portion, you'll remember, land or property in Israel. All the other tribes, they got land or property. They're an agrarian society, so that's how they made their living. Well, the Levites, what do they get? They get nothing. No land. They get cities to live in. Well, how are they going to eat? How are they going to support themselves? The tithe. But they too, get this now, were obligated to tithe. Let me read it for you. Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the Israelites the tithe that I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Numbers 18, verse 26. So, this is what the Pharisees were doing. Nothing wrong with that. Good for them. Jesus does not chide them for giving the tithe. It is obvious that they were very fastidious about the tithe. I mean, even carrying it to the extreme of their garden herbs. And they're listed there. Jesus' condemnation here is that while the religious leaders evidenced great concern in giving a tenth of their income, they neglected more important requirements of the law, namely justice, mercy, faithfulness. What's Jesus' remedy? Do both. Very simple. Two words. Do both. Give your 10%, but also see too that in your dealings with people, and they'd have a lot of dealings with people, you're to be just and and merciful and faithful to your word, and to the promises that you make. He's just dealt with that. But also to God's word and and God's promises. Because you're the religious teachers. Point blank, we do not get to pick and choose when it comes to God's requirements. We're to do both. Both. Now, in the New Covenant, the emphasis is not on the amount of money that we give to God's work, but whether we give with love in our hearts for God and His work. Let me read it for you. For if the willingness is there, writes Paul, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 12, but you need to watch when, when you're saying that. You know, well, what do I have? Well, I went out and I bought a new car and I bought a new furniture and I bought a new this. I don't have much for God's work. So wouldn't that be kind of like the Pharisees playing games with the oath? There's also commendation for giving when you don't have anything to give. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, really? This was Jesus talking about giving sacrificially as he referred to the widow. As he, he watched her throw in her, her two copper coins. He calls his disciple and he commends this woman for doing this. And he compares her. He's saying, All these people that you've seen coming here, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Luke 2, 21, verse 4. So even if you get to the point where you say, I don't have anything to give to God. God said, yeah, you do. You can give sacrificially. See, God is looking for want to in your giving. Not just must do in your giving. Let me read it for you. Paul says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. That would be tithe, wouldn't it? For God loves a cheerful giver. Second Corinthians 9 verse 4. The law stressed mercy and love, which was the part the Pharisees were missing. Deuteronomy text says this. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy. This is a law. This is one of the first five books of the Bible. Give generously to Him and do not withhold withhold, uh, out of a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land, Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and sisters and towards the poor and needy in your land. Deuteronomy 15, verse 10 and 11. It was in the law. We're not just talking New Testament here. So, how come the religious leaders majored in the minors? How could they say and be so strict with themselves to see that they gave the last penny of their tithe, but then they were so deficient in justice, mercy, and faithfulness? What was the major flaw in their character? Well, you have to go to Luke's account to discover that. Here's what he says. Teachings of Christ, recorded by Luke. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice. And the next phrase you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Luke 11, verse 42. Ah, there it is. There's no love of God here. Those who love God love the people of God. Right, Sean? This is how we know who the children of God are, who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning. comes from Christ. who. We should love one another. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and anyone who does not love remains in death. 1 John 3, verse 10 and follow. There it is. That's why there was no mercy, no justice, no faithfulness dealing with people. They didn't love God, so they didn't love God's people. Fifth woe, they had an obsession with externals. Look at verse 25. You clean the outside of the cup. I can just see this. There they are at the kitchen sink, right? They're working with their dishcloth. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Which is more important, folks? Looking good or being good? Being good, right? Well, the religious leaders wanted to look good among the people. Did we not read this earlier? It's in verses 5 through 7. Everything, says Jesus, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. What's a phylactery? Well, I'm sure you've seen pictures of this. They're little leather pouches containing portions of scripture. Probably the scribes would have written those out for the Pharisees. Portions of scripture. rolled up in little tiny miniature scrolls. Put in the little box. And then they would use leather and they would strap these phylacteries on their forehead. I'm thinking about the word of God. Because they had the scriptures taped to their foreheads. And he says, you make the tassels, they make their tassels on their garments long. You all know what a tassel is, but these tassels would be on the bottom of their robes so that when they walk through the street, it would be... And everybody would say, oh, here comes rabbi so-and-so. Oh, yes, yeah, so look yeah. He goes on, Jesus says, they love the place of honor. Here's where their loves are. It's not love of God, but they love the place of honor at banquets in the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them, Rabbi, good morning to you. Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7. It is the love of all things ex- external which Jesus condemns. But there's more. The word for greed here means extortion. Here is where those parallel passages come in that I alluded to earlier. Mark 12 verse 20. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Mark 12 verse 40. An identical wording in Luke 20 verse 47. Here is where it comes in. They took advantage of the compassion of old ladies by bilking them of their money. I've heard of some pastors doing that in our day. And if that were not bad enough, when they got the money, they were were guilty of, Jesus says, self-indulgence. That is to say, they spent God's money on sinful pursuits and not a life of gospel outreach and honorable endeavors. Their ministry was all about them and show and not others. They were all into externals. Do I look good? How's my hair? How's my robe? Is my tie straight? That's what they were into. Looking good, not being good. Woe six. Woe six is similar to woe number five. It's found in verse 27 and 28. The woe is pronounced, and then he says this You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside. But inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. Looking good, Rabbi. But on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, this sixth woe shows the depth of their hypocrisy in that the persona they exhibited by the religious leaders, was that of righteousness, when in reality, behind the scene, where no mortal could look, every wickedness against God was seething in their souls. The people never got to see this. What the people saw was Rabbi Benjamin, dressed in his priestly robes, praying on the corner for all to see leading the people in worshiping, admonishing them and instructing them, like Balaam of old, willing to curse God's people for a price and whose donkey had more integrity than him. Peter words it this way, of, their, of Balaam's descendants in his day. Here's what he says. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. He's talking about the false teachers. They seduce the unstable. They are experts at greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water. Miss, miss, driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. Second Peter 2, verse 14 through 17. Wow. Speaking in the name of God. Appearing to be righteous teachers of the law. But their own hearts were full of wickedness. They were dead inside. The tomb on the outside looked good. Whitewashed tomb. Whew. Imagine that in Palestine when the sun hit. But inside, what's there? Corpses, decaying flesh, or just the bones left. Seventh and final woe is issued by Jesus in verse 29 and following. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets. And you decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, you know, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So, says Jesus, you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Matthew 23, verse 29 through 33. Ever listen to someone trying to defend themselves because of some a wicked accusation that has been brought against them. And when all is said and done, their, their defense, now, their defense is more an incrimination than an exoneration. Macbeth says, Methinks she does protest too much. Lois Lerner, head of the IRS, when it targeted conservative groups, to deny their tax exemption status while all the time approving the request of their liberal counterpart, was subpoenaed to appear before Congress to answer the allegations. She sat down in her chair behind the table and she said, I just want to say that I did nothing wrong and on the advice of my counsel I refused to answer any question on the grounds that it might tend to incriminate me. (laughs) Think about that. If nothing's wrong, if nothing wrong was done, why the reluctance to answer questions? If nothing's wrong, what is there to hide? Why fear incrimination? She came back a second time to Congress and did the same thing. And so, this past week, they have held her in contempt of Congress. And rightly so. In one breath, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, and don't ask me any questions because it might incriminate me. <laughs> I'm not going to answer any questions. These religious leaders did something very similar. If we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. But Jesus rightly made the connection. He connected the dots. Oh, then you admit that you are the descendants of those murderers of old who killed God's prophets. Hey, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. He goes on. Fill up then the measure of the sins of your forefathers. Translation, being the murderers you are, complete the work. That your ancestors started. Look at verse thirty-three and following. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Now, notice some of them you will kill and crucify. He's talking to these people. Said, so "We're we're we're just descendants, but we wouldn't have done what Dad did." Oh. Jesus says, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and teachers and some of them you will kill and some of them you will crucify and others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. That was Paul before he was saved. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bacchaeah, whom you murdered between the temple and the old. And you can read about that in Chronicles. Tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll see me in my glory, and judgment day's coming, and we'll get this straight in the last day. Matthew 23, verse 33 through 39. Ah, seven woes. These are scathing. This, these are filleting. They strip a person completely naked of any self-righteousness. The conspiracy of Jesus' crucifixion, conspirators rather, of Jesus' crucifixion were in every, every way emissaries of Satan. They, he calls them snakes, vipers, children of hell. You don't think you use terms like that on people glibly? They're planning, they're plotting, they're conniving, got Jesus crucified. That's the bruising of Satan. But it also secured for them a a spot in hell. May our righteousness exceed theirs. May we be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Where does hypocrisy show up in our lives? Jesus defined it in the opening verses of this chapter. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, and so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. They had the law, they could teach the law. But, but, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads. They put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. What was this? This was a double standard. The Pharisees were teaching in this way. Do as I say, not as I do. Accept what I say on blind faith. Is that what we're doing to people in our witness? So all I'm telling you is this this is the way you need to live for God. Do you live for God? Read Romans 2. Paul says to the Jews, you teach, do not steal. Do you steal? And he, he goes down this line of reasoning. Because we can all be Pharisees in our hearts. God help us, God help. We who teach, we who are elders, we who are Sunday school teachers have a weightier task. James says we're gonna give an account as teachers, a heavier account. But that aside, let me just say this morning we can all we can all be hypocrites. We can all be pontificating spiritual truth to others and not living in ourselves. And that's why Jesus said, hey, your righteousness better excel. It better exceed that of the Pharisees because they weren't righteous. Well, they were sons of hell. That's who they were. Are we sons of God or sons of hell? If hypocrisy has become a part of your life, if, uh, You're saying one thing and living another way. God's speaking to my own heart. We need to repent. And if judgment begins with the house of God, as the scripture says, then repentance had better begin with the house of God. Our Father, bless the truth of your word. Stir us, disturb us, shake us to the core. We don't want to be like the, these conspirators. They thought they were righteous. they thought they were better than other men. they certainly thought they were better than Jesus, who, in this text at least, strips away all of their self-righteousness and mirrors back to them what is really in their heart, because He knew what was in their heart. They were full of the people. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but not all the people, not all the time. And Jesus here on this day, and this is a crowd. We mentioned, it's mentioned here that Jesus said, verse 1, to the crowd and to his disciples, all these things. So the Pharisees are there and they're listening in, but the crowd is listening in as well. Maybe it was a shock for a lot of these people to hear these things said about their rabbis, their beloved rabbis. But Jesus told it true, and He was doing the greatest good He could have ever done for these men, and that was to expose their hypocrisy, their sin. Lord, when Your Word comes to us and it brings conviction to us, and we say, "That's me. That's that's the way I think. That's what I do. That is the greatest good." You're pointing us to a way for forgiveness. There is no forgiveness apart from repentance. We must turn away from our wickedness and turn unto Jesus as our Savior. Help us, Lord, to be honest with ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.